previously on the psychology of entrepreneurship. Many women see negotiation as something that's more natural for men than for them. So I have this book out called Why Cope When You Can Heal, and I've introduced to the world this uh, method called surgical empathy, which means when you go to where the other person is coming from and they feel you're there, they lean towards you. In the work I do, the, the value I'm seeking to add is not to tell people what to do, but to show them different tools that they have that they can use to resolve things for themselves. It's nefarious, man. Like the brain works in fucked up ways. The mind is one of the most deceiving, manipulative pieces of equipment, flesh, human bodies on earth. I never have trusted my brain. All of that weight lives in our head. And you are the decision maker. Psychology of entrepreneurship. Hi, it's Ronsley. If this is your first volume, welcome. This is a weekly series where I go inside the mind of an entrepreneur, artist, athlete, academic to decipher what is the psychology of our decisions. I'm Australian and I'd like to acknowledge our traditional custodians of country where I live and work. I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge our continuous connection and contribution to land, sea and community. Today, we've got a treat for you from the archives. This is a full-length interview that we've never, ever released before. And since all of you have been asking for full-length interviews, here's one that you should really listen to. Jane, I want to tell you a little bit about myself because I feel that I know a lot about you. I'm new Australian. I'm 11 or 12 years old Australian. And I only recently have started to have conversations with Aboriginal people and Aboriginal leaders and Aboriginal elders. And I've realized that in all my training to become Australian, out of which I gave three English exams, even though I, I spoke English my whole life, I was never told about the history of my country. And I've now started to have these conversations realizing that a lot of people around don't know the history of my country. So with that in mind, I would like to start by asking questions that pertain to the work that you do, because it is important to highlight that First Nations children need attention. Could you give us a context of the work that you do and what you do on a regular basis? And then we can jump into some conversations. Yep. So Currently, I'm the CEO of Children's Ground, and Children's Ground's a First Nations organisation, but it is not an organisation simply in the sense of delivering not-for-profit services. Children's Grounds was set up for systems change. So I've worked in the space of social justice for over 30 years. I have known First Nations people since I was a child, so for over for nearly 40 years. And Children's Ground is a systems change organisation. So after working within the mainstream system for a long time, and I actually did my training as a forensic psychologist, but our country is yet to understand its history, its true history, and appreciate the phenomenal cultures that continue to exist through these lands. We have systems of injustice that impact people globally and that injustice often we focus on 
the people who are experiencing the injustice rather than the system that is creating it. And so after a long time working with people, particularly in the space of trauma and psychology, but working with phenomenal visionaries across all different cultures, but particularly First Nations people who I've had the privilege to know and work with for decades, the depth of injustice within our system that started being perpetrated 250 years ago continues today with the same sort of depth and gravity. And I do fundamentally believe that we can transform systems and we can eradicate inequity and injustice and poverty because they were created by people and they can be resolved by people and we know what the basic foundations are to achieve justice and equity. So Children's Ground is led by First Nations people. It understands that change will only come about by a shift in power, that it is power and politic and that is usually perpetrated against minority groups and in this country, whether it's refugees or people of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds or people who have lived with intergenerational economic poverty, all of that stems from a system that is not designed to empower those groups. And the people who have suffered the most at the hands of that system are First Nations people. So in my journey, I guess, in knowing people and uh, my own personal experiences, professional experiences and sort of organisational experiences and knowing incredible First Nations leaders and elders, children's ground evolved and I've been very lucky to walk alongside amazing people. We have in this country the oldest living knowledge systems in the world. If we stop for a moment to think about over 65,000 years of evolved knowledge systems and practices in any single area of expertise and in my small exposure to that, I have been blown away by the brilliance of these knowledge systems but they're not seen or heard or recognised or understood or privileged in these lands. And as a result of that, First Nations people continue to experience exclusion and racism and injustice. So children's ground is very simple in many ways and I think it is the foundation for achieving justice anywhere in, in that you place the hands back in the power of the people who should have it and they are the people at the grassroots who have phenomenal experiences and knowledges and visions and solutions to resolve the situations they find themselves in. And they are the experts in their situation. And those of us who are lucky enough to have been born and grow up with privilege like myself, then I feel that my role and responsibility is to impact the systems to allow people to have that power and privilege over their own lives. So Children's Ground, First Nations mob leading the way understanding First Nations systems of law and society that come from the land, recognising the experts from the land, recognising that expertise starts with elders and goes all the way down through to children, and in and very simply in any given community ensuring that every single child of the next generation is afforded the opportunity to be privileged in their language and their culture, but also with the Western and global knowledge systems that they should have availed to them to make independent, informed choices to be economically and politically free. 
there's so many things you bring up, including the systems that need to change. And I want to talk about that. You mentioned intergenerational poverty, which is huge. But one of the things I wanted to ask you before all that is, do you see with the recent events, with last year, with 2020, with COVID, with Black Lives Matter, with the whole bunch of things being questioned, do you see that shift in power being accelerated recently at all? I don't think the shift in power's accelerated. I think the recognition of the need has accelerated. And I think the visibility of the issues have become more understood. And as a person of colour, I feel that the global movement allowed for this dramatic shift globally for white people to be able to stand behind and next to, not in front of to hear the voices of and be part of a collaborative system for change and to recognise their power, the power of their voice and their actions in creating the changes in the systems that they have privilege in. That to me was the biggest shift last year. So it wasn't a shifting from a, not necessarily an us and them, but two sides of a coin to people standing on one side of a journey and walking together to achieve justice. And I don't think the power has shifted, but I think the way we walk together, the way we recognise it, the way we amplify, the way we understand and the way we accept the deep structural reform and systemic reform and things like that. When I started in this work, people didn't even understand what it was, but it became common language last year. So I think those sorts of things to me are really exciting. What kinds of conversations are coming up now that you're having with people that you've been having this conversation for ages and people might have not, the penny might have not been dropping for them then. What are some sorts of conversations that are coming up now that suddenly people are trying to understand more? Because to be very honest, I did not think of myself as a person of color until June last year and the Black Lives Matter in Brisbane. I promise you at no point, I literally never thought of myself as a minority at no point in my 40 years of existence until June last year. So this is a whole new discovery piece for me. And mm. having these conversations, Jane, what I realize is I, I see that I can reconcile some of my history of my ancestors with because I'm having these conversations with you, Mob, that I understand how I can... Because when I came here for the first time, it was like, oh, I'm inferior. I have to find a way to be like everyone else around me and I have to talk different. I spoke English my whole life, but I did not speak like this, right? So I had to change the way I spoke, et cetera, et cetera. And I constantly get, where are you from? And I constantly say Australia and ask me other questions. But the point is, I hear that you belonging to this land, it allows me to give my ancestors and the platform that I have been given more appreciation because mm. I'm understanding what you're talking about when you say there's this wisdom that you'll have that literally having the one conversation made me reconcile my identity that I think a lot of people today are struggling with. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And just to clarify, I'm not First Nations from this country. So my father is Tamil from Jaffna grew up in Malaysia. My mother is Anglo-Australian, but I've known First Nations mob for most of my life. And so I have a granddaughter who lives with me who's First Nations and my daughters, you know, half-brothers are First Nations and I have family who are, but I am not. And so I, like you possibly, 
I'm a person of colour who has benefited from privilege and I was born in Australia but these are not my traditional lands. And so with that I feel the issues that are created by the system, for those of us that are not First Nations, we have a responsibility to resolve the systemic injustices that our country holds. It's often has been placed at the feet of First Nations people to do that work for 230 years. But in fact, it's the work of those of us who are not First Nations to do that work because they are injustices that we have all created. And so I feel that responsibility very strongly. And in that, I think there is a really interesting conversation about identity, place and belonging. And when you speak about coming to Australia and having speak differently, I think, or to fit in. William, who is our chairperson, First Nations man who I've worked with over 20 years, he talks about grades of assimilation. And I speak about what it requires for whether it's me, maybe you, but certainly for First Nations people to succeed in mainstream is to constantly compromise your identity to be part of the accepted majority. So whether that's the way you speak or the way you act. You know, I find myself most often in environments where I'm the only person of colour. Now, I I also don't identify so much as a person of colour, but I recognise that I adjust the way I think, feel, talk to be able to pursue the things that I want to pursue. And First Nations people are forced to do that all the time. And generally, the process of assimilation is that more you compromise and the more you assimilate, the more accepted you are. Now, at Children's Ground, what we're saying is that we don't want a situation where if you're First Nations, you are going to live in economic poverty because you're not accepted. But if you compromise that and you speak English well and you stick to the rules of the mainstream dominant society and linguistic society, you'll get along. And in each of those steps, the more you do that, the more often people are forced to step away from their cultural roles, rights and responsibilities. So when we're at children's ground, we talk about a future where children have the inherent right to be First Nations in a global world. And this is what families want for kids. They want them to know their land, their language, their culture, to be secure in their identity and to have economic and political freedoms. And we should be able to achieve that across the world for any child anywhere, where they are accepted in their identity, in who they are, in their culture, their language, their place, but they have the access to the global opportunities that all of us want to experience. So that is our 25-year agenda for Children's Ground. So it's a 25-year journey, and we know that if we start this process when kids are eight, nine, 10, 11, and 12, we're already playing catch up and it's remedial. So we want to privilege these kids from birth so that they are on that journey. They never question their identity or their legitimacy or their culture or their language. And First Nations people have been multilingual forever. They've been traders forever. They've got economic systems. They've got social systems, legal systems, health systems, educational systems. It's about privileging those and building a global context around that that kids can access and leapfrog from i love these conversations jane because i think it's more therapy for me really because i make connections that you know i would have never had the opportunity to make connections and when you're talking about all these things i realize that of course my place of privilege when i constantly think that i am probably one percent of my whole class that made it out of india 
in my whole sort of batch. And I was in a position that I could come here early. My parents made decisions like teaching us English from day dot, not speaking Portuguese or Konkani at home, which made us very English focused. I think in English, but then listening to you, I'm going, wow, I've had the privilege of being brought up in that culture and then come here and take the good really. And that's what I've done. I've just taken the good of both. And mm. I can only imagine once we're exposed to all the things you're talking about that have been sort of hidden that Indigenous Australians and First Nations people have been doing for generations and decades and centuries and you know millennia. It's, it's funny because now we're finding the simplicity of a candlelight dinner. Now we're finding the simplicity of having a deep conversation. When it's crazy how we're going back to traditions of yoga and people are going, but yoga's existed for such a long time, right? That's exactly right. But even if we think about the, the bushfires that are raging in Perth and the bushfires we had earlier this year, and First Nations people were the first scientists. They were the first environmentalists. They were the first land managers. These knowledge systems are phenomenal in their complexity and we have ignored them and now we are suffering the consequences of that. We have medicines throughout the lands of this country that Aboriginal mob use still today that are not known, understood, appreciated. We have health practices that people use. They sustain the oldest living continuous cultures in the world and we're fighting to protect those knowledge systems. You know, just this year, in the last three weeks in Central Australia, we've lost three elders from three different nations and they are the walking professors and knowledge holders and libraries and practitioners because this was an oral experiential training and they're not coming back. That's three whole nations, not three from one. We call them living libraries. You go in and they are the professorship on all of these subjects and knowledge and that's what we're losing in Australia without people even realising that it's happening. Obviously, I'm a guy. So my first idea is how to fix it. But one of the things that I'm having conversations with people and Mandanara Bales is a friend of the show. She's got a, a podcast called Black Magic Woman. And she's talking about having a, a network for podcasters that are only First Nations so that we can get a radio station going. So more of these stories are being captured. I mean, you're working in the field. What are the levers that we can pull that seem that there are probably small things that can be done that might have a bigger impact. What's the 80-20 on, on making these changes? The reason we started Children's Ground is because we have to be realistic that this is about long-term. If we really want to disrupt things, if we really want long-term sustainable change that is honest and real, it is going to take time, it is going to take investment, and it is going to take a change in the power structure. That's not saying that you throw out the power structure that we have, but what it means is all of your work is about amplification. It's about voice. It's about recognising people's histories, truths, voices and visions and recognising that from through people who usually aren't given the opportunity to have those voices heard. And that is your commitment. So part of what you do already is that. At Children's Ground for us, we know that if we can put this intergenerational model we have in place, which is founded on First Nations knowledge systems and understood through our expertise, 
and knowledge of intergenerational trauma, poverty and injustice. I can tell you 100% that if we can put these things in place for long enough in the right way, it will shift everything into the future. Now, what we say to people who want to invest in children's ground is you can fund a project. I've watched this field have this project here and that project there, but on their own, those projects don't shift the status quo. So to shift the status quo, it actually requires a collective interest and a collective vision over the long term. And what we know we have to do is then evidence that. We have to build the evidence base and then we need to use the evidence base to compel policy change, to compel a change in the way the government does its business in this space. There's a lot of vested interests from a lot of people to keep things the way they are. So yes, there are the things that people can do that are easy gets is to become more aware, to take the personal responsibility you have in your life to understand, to listen, to connect and to act and to act in any way that works for you as an individual. And that might be in a small way or it might be in a large way, but it's a collective action towards the same sort of vision and goal, which will compel change. But what we don't need is people acting so they feel good. <laughs> we need people acting for change. It's a hard question to answer because for me, I have lived my life in this space. It is my area. And I believe that we have designed a 25-year strategy for systems change. And I fundamentally believe that that is the thing that will bring about change. And I can't, if we don't put this in place now, we are going to struggle to achieve that change. So I know that the approach that you have and the 25-year approach that focuses on a lot of key areas, uh, fundamental to lifelong well-being for every child, I know that that's part of the thing. One of the things that comes to mind when you're talking about this 25-year vision is for some weird reason, uh, war movies come to mind that the first thing that an enemy knocks out is the communications and silences the voices of getting comms across. And in this 25-year vision, because shifting perspective, right, now is being controlled by the media. Part one of our strategies is how do you change the dominant narrative? And we, all of us, just a part of that, we haven't had the resources to do this research, but we know intuitively if you did research on the representation of First Nations people in the mainstream media over the last 10 years, how much it would be negative and stereotyped and how much would be positive. So part of our core strategies is to ensure positive representation of First Nations people all the time. So amplifying the power, amplifying the voice, celebrating, ensuring those voices come through in anything that we do ensuring the voices of young people, adults, kids, elders. And that to me is something that everybody can do. You don't have to scratch the surface much in your community to find phenomenal human beings doing incredible work and amplifying those voices and shifting the narrative. And that communication narrative is massive. And the thing about communication is that is what First Nations mob are experts at, complete and utter experts at communication and social engagement. So whatever platform people want to use for themselves is important. So as you say, the woman that you connect with, I think it's brilliant to have podcasts that are First Nations directed, specific and focused and targeted. And then we started doing some webinars last year and we were, we were amazed at how many people were interested and took up 
because I think there is a hunger. I think there's a really honest hunger across Australia to be able to understand, access and appreciate First Nations people's systems, knowledges and history from non-First Nations people. I think that it really is something that the people will lead, not the politicians. So I agree with you. I think the communication space is a critical space to compel that change. Yeah, when I mentioned, I was talking to you earlier about how I feel it was a big change for me to go from being Indian to being Australian. And then becoming Australian, I didn't really feel Australian until I started to speak to the Australian, the real Australian. And now I've never felt more Australian. It's weird. It's this really weird sort of dance that I do with my identity. And my wife and me have this conversation all the time. And I can only imagine that when you see children, you deal with First Nation children, you must have these identity issues that you deal with, that you see that come out in everyday interactions that probably people in the first world, I'm doing air quotes, might never witness. But if I said to you, what makes a child grow up to, you know, what are the foundations for any child? That's my question to you. You tell me. What's the foundation for a child to have a good life? Well, love, I think, is probably. Mm-hmm. I keep thinking, I keep feeling critical thinking and them being able to think for themselves and is, is a big one. And I think that comes with self-confidence. So being comfortable with self probably is maybe the most important thing if I had to go in a roundabout way and think out loud. Yeah, that's it. And then if you have those things and you don't have any opportunity to pursue, then you're going to have blockages. So if you don't have health opportunities or educational opportunities or economic opportunities, then those things sit with you. What we do at Children's Ground is so simple. It's ridiculous. It's saying if you're a child and you have safety around you and you have your family around you and you're connected to your language and culture and you have some decent early childhood education, health, and it really reinforces your identity and you're given the tools to make decisions when you finish school, things will be pretty good. That's as simple as children's ground is. But what we have to do is do that for every child in a community is if you do that, at the moment we're asking kids to leave and go and have a scholarship somewhere or leave their communities and we're leaving, they're coming back to communities in absolute disrepair because we haven't invested in those communities. People I work with live in tin sheds with no running water. They're traditional owners of their country. With children's ground we just go about the foundations, love, critical thinking, self-confidence. When I look at Aboriginal kids being brought up as a psychologist, they are given that in spades. So the way Aboriginal kids are brought up in the world, their early childhood development, First Nations early childhood development, absolutely kicks out of the park any other early childhood development I have ever seen anywhere in any culture. Kids are raised to be confident. Kids are held. Their identity is secure. They know who their family is. There's a focus and a, and a real sort of everything is about family connection, society, who's around, who you're connected to. Because when you are born, that is actually when your identity is secure. Whereas in the West, and for my father as a Sri Lankan man, and I know for a lot of my friends, it's who you become that's important. And I heard your TED talk when you talked about the self-thought about would your father say, are you going to be an engineer? But we see that all the time, don't we? It's who you become that is important. Now, for First Nations mob is actually your birth and your connection to your country and to people 
that is the primary single biggest important thing. So you are born into your identity. You don't become your identity. So in fact, as kids, kids have this incredible strength in who they are. They're not spending their life becoming successful because their success is actually how they recognize and fulfill their responsibilities to their society and to their land. It's not who they become and how rich they become. So it's a really different foundation. So what you find is kids are raised incredibly to be confident in their environment. You know, in the West, again, we often go, don't touch that, don't touch that, be careful of this. We're so cautious around our kids. First Nations kids are encouraged to explore. Their spirit is held in place for them to become who they are. People go, oh, Aboriginal people are amazing sports people. Well, it's not a coincidence. Kids are encouraged to be physical in their environment, to have prowess in their environment, to become masters of their environment, not to be scared of their environment. And so those foundations, they are all there for kids. The barriers are actually the systemic barriers that we put in place to stop these kids having the opportunities they should have to be able to express their brilliance. That's what we're trying to change. this audio documentary has always been to build a strong community of entrepreneurs and creatives to provide a space where they can use their voice to share their authenticity with the world. As a valued listener, your voice matters too. We love to hear your feedback and ideas. So don't be shy to let us know how we're doing in the ratings and comments. If you have a message for our production team or know someone who would be a perfect fit as a guest, You can find out more information on how to share your input at psychologyofentrepreneurship.com. So let's talk about systemic, because I've I've had it written down here for a while now, systems that need to change, but there's obviously a lot of systems that need to change in general. I mean, we can all pick a bunch of systems that need to change. I last, I got, my license got suspended for a month because I did not vote. And (laughs) yeah, right. And I was there and because what they do is we don't vote and, you, and it goes to spur. They The first thing they do, so you don't pay your rates and you don't vote, they can take away your license. And I'm like, it does. this doesn't even make sense, right? So there's a whole bunch. Of, yeah. So anyway, the point is there's all these systems that need to change. Let's start with the important ones. What are the ones, what are the first ones that you see that we need to start chipping away at. Okay. So again, this goes back to the very tenant of what we're doing. Again, if I take a First Nations child, they will be more likely to die at birth. They are going to be more likely to go into hospital. Just about every single two-year-old I know will be hospitalized for something. They are more likely to be taken into care and child protection, 10 times more likely. They are more likely not to finish school. They are more likely to be incarcerated. They are more likely to have family member in jail and every single one of them will die 10 or 12 or 15 years younger than us at birth. So when we talk about systems, our education system is completely not fit for purpose for First Nations kids. Our health systems, our justice systems, our child protection systems. 
So when we look at how do you achieve a change in 25 years, so that that's the first thing. The other thing is that we compartmentalise things in the West and First Nations systems have always integrated. You cannot separate an elder from a child. You cannot separate health from education. You cannot separate land from well-being. So it's always been an integrated system. So if we say to ourselves, we want these kids to have this opportunity when they're 25, what will it take? So when I say Children's Ground is a systems change organisation, we are literally putting in place a different system. And if we get it right, that is the system we will then promote to government to say, we have prevented ill health, we have prevented suicide, we have prevented kids going into care, we have prevented youth incarceration, we've prevented adult incarceration, we've prevented hearing loss, we've promoted economic independence and people who want to be off Centrelink and have income and self-determination. So again, I don't pick one system because what I did in the first 15 years of my career was look at how do you adjust the systems that we have and all you're doing is tweaking around the edges. I'm so glad yeah. I asked the question because obviously yeah, that last line is really important. The fact that you can't just... because again. It's a really important point that you bring up when when I think about solving things, I think about, well, what are the small tweaks that need to be made? And you're being very clear right now and you're saying, well, those small tweaks can't be made. We've got to make a, a change as a, as a whole system because they're all interlinked. Yep, that's exactly right. Now, that doesn't mean we don't continue to put efforts into mainstream systems. So one of the things we're talking about is First Nations reform in education for example. So what that would look like is First Nations-led education systems, which they have in places like Hawaii, New Zealand and other places. We're about 40 years behind in Australia. But also changes, you'll hear more and more about content in mainstream. So we still need to make some adjustments in some of our mainstream systems. But at the same time, we need to reinvent a whole systemic approach that is driven and led through First Nations privilege. Well, when you were talking about all these different systems, right, the education, the health, the justice, and you were talking about specific instances where the path is not simple, like incarceration, you mentioned, which it happens a lot, like incarceration is ridiculous, the rate. And recently, I've just finished four interviews with men on death row, which has been a fascinating experience to kind of go, well, they're so like everyone else. And when I'm thinking about this particular issue when i was having those conversations i was talking to some of the people around me and what i was constantly getting back was why you even what have they done was the first question right what and 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 why do they need to have a voice was probably a different way expressed and what i've come to to find out by having these conversations is i could have easily been in their position if something didn't go right. I've done dumb shit when I was a kid and that could have gone horribly wrong. I could be horrible in those positions. It's luck. Literally, it's luck that I'm not in that position. And I feel for us being born in this position of privilege, we kind of feel like we've got to do something. And sometimes we, we talk before we even listen. And you mentioned this before about the listening piece. I wonder whether there are 
places that we can go to actually consume more things because I feel like in my blood it runs is probably one of the things that people should just consume just as this is normal information you need to know this. Yeah. Yeah, I was really pleased to be part of bringing that film to life because it, it is, it just sells a journey and, and story of, you know, everyday kids in many, many communities and brings truth to the voice and the power of kids. I, I do think there's lots and lots of places where people can access information and the voices of First Nations people. What I found over the last 30 years is how generous First Nations people are in sharing their stories, their voice, their truth. And in many ways, it's just waiting for people to find the information and to take the time and to open and listen and hear. But it's there. It's given to us all the time. In terms of prisons, I started my professional life in prisons in a maximum security prison in Melbourne for a number of years with recidivist offenders. And I've known people who've been murdered. I've known murderers. I've, as a psychologist, heard the most horrific things you could ever hear probably a human being doing to another. But what I would say about all of those people that I worked with is that you understand the journey that has taken them into prison. And it goes back to that conversation about do you just look at the person and judge the person or do you understand the system that has driven that outcome? And when do we accept as a society that disproportionate representation of people in prison who are either First Nations or come from economic poverty or political disadvantage as opposed to those who have other economic opportunities or representation and can get themselves out of prisons or not go into them in the first place or luck as you say. So I think it's wonderful that you give that voice and that you continue to challenge people because we are all part of a society and every single person that sits in any place is part of a broader local community, national and global context. When people say there's only one race and it's the human race, that's it. We have a joint responsibility for one another, one way or the other. You brought up psychology, and I've, I've been meaning to ask you this question ever since I knew you did a master of psychology. What made you do that? What made what made you go down that path? And then, once you understood some of the principles of psychology, what became evident around you? Like, oh, that's interesting. Now, I, this makes sense. Like for me, confirmation bias was one of those things that I was like, oh, of course, I'm going around trying to confirm my bias. So what are the things that, what made you do it in the first place? And then and what have you learned by having that in your arsenal? I've always, from when I was young, my mother's incredibly beautiful woman. And I was very lucky to grow up in an environment where the interest of others is something that you've got joy from and the care of others. And so I always enjoyed that when I was a child, but I also witnessed racial injustice as a child too. And just sort of cruelty, I guess, between children and children and adults and children and teachers and people. I think I just had a bent towards that and I sort of found my way into psychology. And then I decided to do forensic psychology, my master's in forensic psychology. And to be honest, I'm not quite sure what led me to that path, but I do remember stepping inside Pentridge Prison, which was the old Bluestone Prison here in Victoria, and visiting there and thinking I cannot believe that this is how we would treat another human being irregardless of what a person does to another person this is not how you treat a human being and the level of within the structure itself and I just had 
a drive that, that I wanted to work in that space. And I learned so much from those prisoners. I ran the therapeutic community there. I was only 23 and 24 at the time, but I just went on this massive sort of learning journey. And in my early days as a psychologist, I guess in that first 10 years when I practiced psychology and really worked in the, at the coalface of trauma, you realize then that it's a, such a privilege for people to share their story with you. It's incredible privilege for someone to sit with you and to trust you with their journey and to be able to walk alongside someone for them to, and I do believe that all of our journeys should be around the empowerment of others in their own story and their own truth and that people are incredibly capable. Unfortunately, we come very much from a deficit model in our world and again in children's ground, we come from a strength-based approach that doesn't matter. The most traumatised people in the world are often the most sensitive and emotionally intuitive, incredibly powerful and resilient and knowledge about people. And so how do you hold a space for somebody to walk through that and to come through, whether it's the violence they perpetrate against others or themselves if they're suicidal or alcoholics or experience violence. And I've worked with women and I've worked with men, I've worked with perpetrators, I've worked with those who are survivors. And I've learned more probably than I've ever given. So what have I taken from that? <laughs> I don't know. You said how when you worked with the people on death row, how easily it could have been you. And when we talk about privilege, for me, that's what it is. It's any, any single given person could find themselves in a situation of distress or trauma or violence or war that is simply the birth and the environment that you find yourself in that will determine what your life experiences are. But our fundamental underlying humanity is amazing. And the people that I worked with in the prison who, as you say, people from the outside would condemn them tomorrow, had greater moral fortitude than some of the politicians and most incredible business people that I've met across my life. It's just what do we value as a society? Jane, when you're saying all this, I remember that brought up in a conversation and he, we got into this conversation about how he, the jailers think that the prisoners want to be inside prison. And my wife could see that I didn't know how to respond, but I, I was getting infuriated that he jumped to the conclusion because he had never met, he had never had a conversation with someone from prison, but I just did. And he was just making that judgment and I'm sure that the people in general probably jump to that conclusion that they just want to be there. What would you have to say to that? And also from your years of experience from a psychological perspective, why do people jump to that conclusion? Well, I think there's two things. One is people don't understand what it means not to have your freedom. And when you don't have your freedom, then people are very raw and honest in a way that you don't find in any other sort of context, I don't think. And so when you don't understand what it means not to have your freedom, then people are failing to sort of empathise, I guess, and, and they don't feel that they should empathise because they feel that person has done something wrong. So we live in a society of us and them and of the other where we position our worth in the context of another. And prisoners and prisoners are a really easy way to do that and we see it play out in politics and I think over the last 25 years, you know, it started in WA where the politicians realised that youth crime could be a political football 
and we started to marginalise young people and it became almost a public political sport and it won votes and being tough on crime wins votes and positioning them as the other and as evil and as bad and as traitors and as threats. They can be civil wars, but they can be societal wars. And so what we see in politics is that we launch these wars on people within our community and we have positioned those in prison as people who are bad. We could be positioning people in prison as having higher mental health issues than anyone in the community, having higher economic poverty than anybody else in the community, having higher degrees of homelessness than anyone in the community, being First Nations, 27% of First Nations people. We could be or culturally diverse communities and refugees, but we don't define people in prison as people. We define them by their behaviour and that allows us to position ourselves as somehow morally superior. And I just think that's also the thing that underpins racism at the end of the day. It underpinned the history of colonisation of our country where it was legislated and policy-driven genocide where there was a fundamental belief that First Nations people would die out because they were inferior. So there's something, I think, within our psychology as human beings and our sense of identity and place and purpose that means that we are positioning ourselves against the other all the time. So how we then define people in prison is an extension of that. It is one of the reasons why I love First Nations systems of law and society because they're phenomenally complex and they belong to a system of land and it's a collective governance system and and it's accountable governance system so there's accountability back to systems uh, to societal structures and laws that are based on equity in a way that our systems aren't it really is quite phenomenally brilliant and it, I think it is why it's the oldest sustainable culture you know there's a whole lot of other systems of knowledge that bring that but it's fundamentally it's a social system and the system of of responsibility and accountability within First Nations systems that has sustained communities over generations, so many generations, and we don't have the same in the West. So I don't know if that answers your question, but... No, it was... Uh, I, I love that line, people don't understand what it means to not have freedom. And I think we make the judgments because we've never witnessed what it's like to not have enough food to eat, for example. I said, said this yesterday somewhere, I can't remember where it was in... in in a meeting or in a, in a speaking thing. But like I said to the audience that in Australia, we don't have any idea what it's like to be entirely poor. I mean, poverty in India is different level of poverty. I think it's hard for someone here to even, like in, in, in general, like to, you have support and you have these systems that are created that allow some people to never witness going a day without food doesn't necessarily happen in, in most parts of the world. I, I wanted to wind up on this particular thing because it is important to understand because you spoke about trauma, you spoke about intergenerational trauma especially, and because intergenerational trauma are two words that could be easily misunderstood depending on people's perspectives, I would love for you to, if you could explain what that means first and if we could give examples of what First Nations people go through when it comes to intergenerational trauma. I'll, I'll do that. And then just to finish off that last sort of thing around incarceration, 
the truth is most people are in jail because of crimes of poverty that drive and in all the people that I've ever worked with people who have been violent people who have been I've yet to come across somebody who wanted to treat somebody in that way and who isn't you know personally aggrieved by their own behavior most people most people don't want to be violent it doesn't justify their violence that's a very different thing have a responsibility for their behavior but just because someone behaves in a certain way doesn't mean that's how they want to be. Back to, yeah, intergenerational trauma. So there's lots of work being done in epigenetics around understanding the impact of trauma across generations. What we absolutely know is that exposure to trauma impacts your health, your mental health, all sorts of things. So it leads to increased risk of suicide, increased risk of heart disease, increased risk of early death, chronic diseases, all sorts of things. And it makes sort of common sense that if you experience trauma and you experience it repeatedly, then it is going to have an impact on your health and your mental health. Intergenerational trauma has two facets. One is kids are being born into environments where their parents and grandparents have experienced trauma and carry the weight of that trauma with them. And that in itself impacts on a child's life. So that might be the impact of trauma in that parents or grandparents' own health, mental health, economic health and cultural health will impact the environment for that child. There's also work that says, well, if that child's in utero, are there genetic changes for that child as a result of trauma? It's being held by that parent at the time that that child's conceived and then that child's coming through a whole process of trauma and that parent is holding the trauma of their previous generation's trauma. And I think they've gone back three, four or five sort of times of that trauma being able to come through. And that's some of the research that's happening. But what we know around generational trauma is that if you think that everything about society and law comes from the land, and that is what we remove from people. So we do this timeline of colonisation, which is really important for young Aboriginal people, First Nations people, to know their history and their truth. It's important for non-First Nations people, but it's equally important for First Nations people because they're they're being denied the truth of that history in their own academic institutions. And some young people don't know that history and so they don't understand why they're living with such stress and distress and why it's such a challenge and why the barriers are there and how they might be able to shift that. But we forcibly remove people from their lands. We enslaved people. We murdered people, we tortured people, we stole children, we poisoned people, we placed people in forced sort of labour. Every single aspect of their life was controlled, where they could live, what they could do, where they could move, who they could talk to. They were punished if they practised culture and language. Their lands were completely possessed by somebody else and Sacred sites were destroyed which hold law and ceremony and history and knowledge. There's responsibility in that land. So as soon as you take that, you damage the responsibility that someone has, their ancestral responsibility to the care of that country. So that was just a constant assault on people's lives in the first 100 years. And then we put in legislation after legislation after legislation after legislation for the next sort of 80-odd years to keep people completely under the control of the state without any real freedoms, without any recognition, without any knowledge. So that only started to shift in the 60s 
And then in the 70s, there was this short period of self-determination where we saw Aboriginal organisations evolve and this fantastic sort of people being able to have freedoms of movement and try and find their ancestral lands where they could. We had a land rights movement in the Northern Territory. We had this really huge range of impact across the country of over 300 different nations, you know, different distinct nations, languages, peoples, not one people, not one First Nations, over 300 different nations of people who had connected for millennia, forever. Now the resolution of that is actually around the empowerment of children and giving them the right to their own history, their own knowledges, their own languages, understanding that, understanding the incredible resistance and resilience and freedom fighters across these lands. Every single nation have, has had them and they continue today. And they're not known, they're not understood, they're not heard. So intergenerational trauma is held by kids today in many, many forms. And it's, as we know, it's compounded by the day-to-day trauma that can happen in people's lives that we hear about with closing the gap. But kids are born into that. They're also born with the resilience and the power and the strength that comes from surviving that. So I, I don't know if that answers your question, but that is the sort of context of intergenerational trauma and resilience. Oh, it's very helpful, like the way you've broken it down, because it's really good the examples you gave on how it does affect people because when you think about the fact that this is probably the first or second generation that hasn't been stolen, really. I think Mandanara was talking about how she's the first generation that was not in a camp, which blows my mind because she's in her 30s. So it's, it's like... Oh, look, I know people who are put in the carcasses of animals so they weren't stolen, they're still alive today. I know lots of people who were stolen. But to say that kids aren't stolen today, there'd be a lot of people that would challenge that. So this is the thing around structural change is that what was legislated before might not be legislated now, but it's still happening. So we have more kids in care than we ever had through the stolen generation. We have 10 times more Aboriginal kids going into the child protection system than non-Aboriginal kids. So we still have the removal of children at, at rates that are horrendous. So hold on. I was about to end this thing, but that's obviously, this is obviously something really important. So, so the system is actually stealing children. First Nations, lots of First Nations people say we still have a stolen generation. We have kids. The facts are Aboriginal children go into child protection at 10 times the rate of non-Aboriginal children. And the levels of children in care are higher than at any other time in our history, which means they're being removed from their families, removed from their identity, removed from their culture and in care. So it's a different form. Yeah, and this care and they're being removed by people who believe that they're not safe in the environments they're in. Correct. And sometimes they might not be, but why is that? And is the response to remove them and sometimes they won't be, but they're being judged as. So it's complex. But the reality is that we have a whole generation of children now who are being removed from their families. And that's a whole other conversation that we could have another day. But one thing that I'd like to probably leave you with is I wrote this little, I think I might have put it on a something on our Facebook, but when you, how many, how many welcome to countries have you gone to? One, maybe. So lots. Now in Australia, we have 
welcome to countries at events and ceremonies and all sorts of things. And what I say to people, the greatest experience that I've had as a psychologist in humanities to watch the First Nations elders and their generosity and their spirit and their inclusion. And this comes from this power of their history and law. Every day there's probably somebody doing a welcome to country in, a, in Australia, a First Nations leader, and they are welcoming people who have come to their country and caused all this harm. They don't stand up there and judge. They don't stand up there and accuse. They don't stand up there and threaten. They stand up and they welcome with a generosity of spirit that comes from a very, very deep law of the lands. Because when people welcome you to their country, they are giving you safe passage on their country, even though you are living on their countries, on their sacred sites, on their seas, on their lands, with your children, and they continue to have their kids removed and people put in jail and living in economic poverty and without any political voice, but still they come and welcome us with incredible and leadership and humanity because it comes from a deep law. That's the question. Psychology of entrepreneurship is an interesting one, but to me it's around the psychology of humanity. And that is the power of a deep law that comes from millennia of generations that allows people the power to welcome us always despite being in this intergenerational injustice. Well, I I never even thought about that. And, and I think that now I just want to attend more Welcome to Countries because even when I did attend that Welcome to Country, I didn't realize what was going on. The penny didn't drop then. I, I thought it was a performance. It's very, it feels very different. I even feel really, I don't feel good admitting that, to be honest, with what I know now. But that's the truth. And I just want to be truthful of when I did experience it. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know that. I think a lot of people don't. I don't think people do know that it comes from a deep law. Well, Jane, thank you so much. This has been such a good conversation. I've loved every minute of it. I love having this conversation. It's opened my eyes to so many different things. And I feel privileged to be even in the position to have these conversations. So thank you so much. Oh, oh thank you so much for your time. It's been wonderful to meet you and and to have a chat. It's just been gorgeous. Psychology of Entrepreneurship. Coming up on The Psychology of Entrepreneurship. I'm a little insensitive to victim complex, meaning, you know, the one thing I will say is if you get on stage in a room that says harsh feedback, you're going to get it straight and you aren't ready for that, don't put yourself in that position. I don't believe in that victim complex of like, oh, well, I tried, but you still shouldn't be mean. Like, that's not right. I don't do the pity party thing on the other side. Like the pain points and the struggles of running a business, I'm not public about. Because I don't think there's any, it's not productive. Psychology of entrepreneurship. This is a Must Amplify production. Special thanks to every guest expert that has appeared on the show. Editing, voiceovers, and sound design by Kaylee Bonniman and Tiago Vega. Guest research by Jenna Elliott. 
content by Corinne Castles, project managed by the legend that is Kelly Bonniman, produced and hosted by me, Ron Slivas. For more episodes and way to listen, go to mustamplify.com slash P-O-E. Love the polished audio docu-series style of this podcast, The Psychology of Entrepreneurship? At We Are Podcast, you can learn how to create a similar style for your own show. This revolutionary virtual event assembles podcasters, entrepreneurs, and marketers in one spot, so you're able to learn from the masters. Head straight to wearepodcast.com to reserve your spot at our next event.